Do you ever feel forsaken by God? Do you ever feel forsaken by God? Have you ever wondered if God's rejected you? Have you ever thought that God has perhaps abandoned you? If you have, you're not alone. We all have, and we all do, and we all will feel this way. And God's people have wrestled with feelings and thoughts like this for ages. The psalmist says, Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Or, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? Or, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? For ages, God's people have wondered whether God had abandoned them, have wondered where he was. And I assume that there are many even in the room this morning with me who feel that way perhaps more often than we'd like to admit. Perhaps there's a loneliness that you can't shake, a frustration that you're still single, a marriage that's difficult and doesn't seem to be improving, a health issue that won't resolve, a nagging family dynamic that won't go away, a besetting sin that keeps coming back no matter how hard you try to kill it, a financial stress, a baby that won't sleep, an inner turmoil that won't subside. All these things and more shake our confidence that God is with us. We reason like this. If God were with us, this wouldn't be happening and I wouldn't be feeling this way. We wonder why God seems far away when our desire is that we would be close to Him. We may even think that Perhaps God has finally had enough of our sinning and He's done. We may conclude that God's presence in our lives is contingent on our performance. Do you ever feel forsaken by God? Wondering if He's rejected or abandoned you. We all have and we all do and we all will and we often conclude based on those feelings and thoughts we often conclude things that aren't true so we need the Bible to help us to think through these things and feel appropriately through these times we read the Bible and we come to passages like Genesis 28 we meet a man like Jacob if you'll remember from last week in Genesis 27 Jacob was a scoundrel He's a scheming, deceitful thief of a man. He's a fugitive on the run from his brother who wants to kill him. His parents have sent him away for his own protection. He's leaving the promised land, headed to a foreign country. As we meet him this week in Genesis 28, we're going to find that he's all alone. He's journeying through the wilderness. He's a homebody, wondering if he'll ever get to go back home. Wondering if his sins have perhaps finally caught up to him. But then something remarkable happens to this this scheming scoundrel of a man. Something remarkable happens in the wilderness to Jacob. 
He's on the run, and God visits him. He's a fugitive who sinned against his parents, his brother, and his God. He's been sent away by his parents. His brother wants to kill him. And yet God comes to him. And when God comes, instead of coming to punish him for his sins or curse, curse him for his evil deeds, he comes to bless him and promises that he'll be with him, that he hasn't forsaken him. He says, I'll not only be with you now, I'm going to be with you forever, wherever you go, no matter what. This is amazing, surprising grace from God. This is what happens in Genesis 28. And brothers and sisters, if you're a Christian, if you're following Christ, this is what's happened to you. <laughs> You were running, you were fleeing, you weren't running to God, but away from Him, and God went to you. He visited you, and He made promises to you. He's given you Himself the best thing He possibly could have given you. You might think, well, forgiveness is great, heaven sounds nice. The best thing God's given you, Christian, is Himself. You get to know God. This is amazing. You ever stop and think about that? That you get to know the creator of all things, the most perfect, beautiful, powerful, kind, considerate being in the universe, that you get him? If you're a Christian, this is your reward. God, he's come to you. He's given you himself. He's given you promises. He's given you his presence. And we see some echoes of what will later Become more full in the gospel here in Genesis 28. So if you have a Bible, find Genesis 28. There's some little black Bibles in the pew backs in front of you. Find Genesis 28, first book of the Bible, chapter 28. In Genesis 28, a sinful, scared man on the run runs into God. Now, as we approach this text, let me just remind us that when we deal with a man, we meet a man like Jacob, um, he stands for the whole nation of Israel. In fact, in chapter 35, God will rename Jacob Israel. He stands for the whole nation of Israel. And then when we read the New Testament later, we understand that Israel, this idea of the, the people of God as an ethnic people, expands to include God's people of all ethnicities, all people everywhere who belong to Him through faith in Christ. So we can read a passage like this and not just assume, well, this happened to Jacob back then, way, you know, way back there, and that's not really of any use to us today. No, 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 no. That's not how we should read the Bible. Jacob stands for Israel. Israel stands for the church. If you're in the church, this passage speaks directly to you, telling you that you can be comforted with these same kinds of promises that Jacob's going to receive, promises of God's presence wherever you are and wherever you go. The main point of this text, the main point of my sermon, is that God's presence comforts His sinful people wherever they are. God's presence comforts His sinful people wherever they are. In this text, we'll see two things. We'll see Jacob leave his family, 1 through 9, verses 1 through 9. Then we'll see Jacob find God, 10 through 22. So Jacob leaves his family, Family. then Jacob finds God. But then I want to close with this question. How can we live in the presence of God today? So those are our three points for this morning. Jacob leaves his family. Jacob finds God. How can we live in the presence of God 
today. In Genesis 28, we're reminded that though we may feel forsaken by God, God's people know that, God's, that God never leaves them. Number one, Jacob leaves his family. Genesis 28, 1 through 9. Genesis 28, 1 through 9. Then Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and directed him, You must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. Arise, go to Paddan Aram, to the house of Bethuel, your mother's father, and take as your wife from there one of the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you, that you may become a company of peoples. May he give the blessing of Abraham to you and to your offspring with you that you may take possession of the land of your sojournings that God gave to Abraham. Then Isaac sent Jacob away, and he went to Paddan Aram to Laban, the son of Bethuel, the Aramean, the brother of Jacob, excuse me, the brother of Rebekah, Jacob, and Esau's mother. Verse 6, Now Esau saw that Isaac had blessed Jacob and sent him away to Paddan Aram to take a wife from there, and that as he blessed him, he directed him, You must not take a wife from the Canaanite women, and that Jacob had obeyed his father and his mother and gone to Paddan Aram. So, when Esau saw that the Canaanite women did not please Isaac, his father, Esau went to Ishmael and took as his wife, besides the wives he had, Mahalath, the daughter of Ishmael, Abraham's son, the sister of Nebaot. Number one, Jacob leaves his family. Verses one through four are the last words of Isaac in Scripture. Isaac agrees with Rebekah that Jacob should flee to Laban, to Haran, to Laban, who is Rebekah's brother, so that he might find a wife from Rebekah's relatives. He speaks the Abrahamic, Isaac speaks the Abrahamic blessing over his son. The promises of Abraham and the promises of Isaac have now officially, we might say, become the promises of Jacob. But again, Isaac leaves out the spiritual and missional aspects of the covenant promises, just as he had in the previous chapter. Isaac mentions the land, the seed, and the blessing promised to Abraham, but he says nothing about how God will bless the whole world through Jacob or how the Lord will be with him wherever he goes. Isaac leaves that part out. It seems that uh, Isaac is likely still reeling from the deception of the last chapter. As I said last week, he's still struggling to see in more ways than one. He's, He's caught up with the material blessings of God and missing the spiritual and missional aspects of the covenant. But God will see to it that Jacob receives all the covenant promises and all the covenant blessings, as we'll see in just a few moments. But Esau, on the other hand, verses 6 through 9, Esau attempts to please his parents one more time by taking a wife from Ishmael's family. It's almost like he's, he's sinning one more time to cover up these sinful choices he's already made. And don't we do this also? He, he's like, I've done some things that are wrong. I need to make those things right, so I'm going to do something else that is, is not right, as if that will make it right. You may have heard it said, two wrongs don't make a right. But three rights do make a left, by the way. Whatever. Esau is desperate still for the approval of his father, but this wife, this Ishmaelite wife, seems to still escape Isaac's notice. Isaac says nothing about this last-minute attempt for Esau to redeem himself before Isaac dies. Esau is a bitter, angry, 
sinful man, desperate for the blessing of his father when Jacob leaves. But when Jacob returns in 20 years, that's not how long the sermon series will be, by the way, but in 20 years, in chapter 33, we will find that um, Esau changes. Now, I'm not saying that he's going to become part of the covenant like Jacob is, but he does come back a changed man. Or excuse me, he's a changed man when Jacob comes back. No one is beyond the possibility of significant life change, no matter how hurt or how angry or how sinful they are. Don't give up on the people you know who are, who are far from God. So we've seen Jacob leave his family. We're going to spend a lot more time on number two, Jacob finding God. So number one, Jacob leaves his family. Number two, Jacob finds God, verses 10 through 22. So look at verse 10. We'll read to the end of the chapter. Verse 10, Jacob left Beersheba, went toward Haran. And he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed. And behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I've done what I've promised you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place! This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. Verse 18, So early in the morning Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on top of it. He called the name of that place Bethel, but the name of the city was Luz at the first. When Jacob, then Jacob made a vow, saying, If God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go, and will give me bread to eat and clothing to well, uh, wear, so that I may come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone, which I have set up for a pillar, shall be God's house. And all that you've given me, I will give a full tenth to you. So Jacob leaves the presence of his family. He finds the presence of God, but we might better say that it's God who found Jacob rather than Jacob who found God. Jacob left Beersheba, headed to Haran, looking for a wife, not looking for God. But God came looking for him that fateful night. The God of the Bible, as I said, is a God who goes after sinners, not waiting for sinners to come to him. In Luz, on that fateful night, God went after Jacob, not because of Jacob's virtue. He didn't have any. He was a liar and a thief. He was a scared man on the run. But God went after him anyways. God was saying, you and all of, despite all of your sinfulness, you will be my man. You will get my grace. 
One of the main things that these stories that we're studying in Genesis are meant to teach us. This is like a broken record, if you will. Every week we study these patriarchal narratives in Genesis. We're supposed to remember and see that God saves sinners. The Lord didn't come into the world to save the righteous. He came for the sick, Jesus says, not the healthy. These patriarchal narratives are also supposed to show us on repeat every week that salvation is only and always by grace. None of these people deserve anything from God. But God comes to them, makes promises to them, makes them His own. Friends, if God only made Himself known to people who had their act together, the Bible would be a lot shorter and churches would be empty. You are not a Christian because of anything you've done. Don't be like the Pharisee beating his chest in the temple. Look how great I am. Glad I'm not like these sinners over here. No, no, no. Jesus says plainly, that sinner over there was the one who went home justified because he understood his need. Not the one who thought he deserved something from God, but the one who knew he didn't deserve anything from God. So God doesn't wait for Jacob to come to him. He takes the initiative and goes to Jacob, meeting him in this dream while he sleeps. The focus of the dream is verse 15, this promise in verse 15. Behold, that word is very important, by the way. It's used here to introduce something very important. Behold, the Lord says, I am with you and will keep you or guard you. The word means guard. I will keep or guard you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I've done what I've promised you. Now keep in mind again what's happening to Jacob. He's a fugitive fleeing his murderous brother Esau, being sent away by his parents on this 500-mile long journey to Haran. Jacob is on his own for the first time in his life. It's time for Jacob to find himself apart from his family. His situation now requires a change in his understanding of God, a change in his relationship with God. The Lord had been the family God to Jacob, but not his God. And I wonder if this is where some of you may find yourselves today. You've left home to go to college or grad school to start a new career in Dallas. All you know and love is hundreds, maybe thousands of miles away. You're starting to realize that life is a bit harder than you anticipated. Amen? You're wondering whether you really believe all the stuff your parents believe. You may even be tempted to stop going to church until you're older and have a family of your own. The Lord is bringing you to a place where you have to decide whether the Lord is the family God or your God. In His kindness, He's stripping away some of the comforts and securities of your life so that you'll start asking life's most important questions. Who am I? What do I believe? Who is my God? Friends, if you grew up in a church setting but you aren't following Jesus actively, consciously, passionately following Jesus, let me remind you 
that you aren't a Christian just because you grew up in a church setting. You, you aren't a Christian just because you prayed a prayer at a vacation Bible school or youth camp or got baptized as a kid and have been you know, really diligent in trying to be a nice person. You aren't a Christian just because your parents are. God doesn't have any grandchildren, only children. You, friend, you must realize that you've sinned against God, the holy God who made you. You must believe that your sin deserves God's judgment, not the sin of other people, but that your sin deserves God's judgment, that Jesus died on the cross for your sins, that He alone can take away those sins and give you His righteousness. And the good news of the Gospel is that if you call out to Christ with faith and turn away from your sins, you will become God's child, forgiven, made righteous, adopted into His family. If this is you this morning, the good news is that God is coming to you just like He came to Jacob. He's calling you to Himself. Jacob's dream wasn't his idea. He didn't turn to God. God turned to him. And I wonder if even this morning God is turning to you now as you hear the words coming out of my mouth. I wonder if God is turning to you now at your Luz, your Bethel, if you will, asking you to make a decision. Who will your God be? Will you trust in God and give your life to Him? Or will you live for yourself? Will, will Jesus be your family's God? Or will Jesus be your God? Friends, I encourage you to make that decision soon. Very soon. Verse 12 says, Jacob sees this ladder set up on the earth. The top of it reaches to heaven. The better translation of the word ladder is flight of steps. What do we call a flight of steps? Stairway. Stairway, staircase. This is not to be confused with Led Zeppelin's song, by the way. Stairway to Heaven, 1971. Maybe the greatest classical rock, classic rock song of all time, but has nothing to do with this text. I looked at the lyrics this week. The, the lyrics of that song, I don't even know what they're talking about. It's a great jam, though, anyways. This stairway to heaven, from earth to heaven, probably resembled the broad stone staircases that went up the side of ziggurats, these pyramid-like structures that you can even find today, these ancient ruins that had staircases going up the side of them to the top. In ancient times, the gods were thought, to live on the top of these sacred mountains, these sacred artificial mountains. And so to worship them, you had to ascend the steps of these sacred mountains and arrive at the summit. But what's remarkable here is that Jacob in his dream sees God not at the top of the staircase, but at the bottom. Now I know verse 13 says the Lord stood above it. I don't think that's the best translation. Your ESV actually has a footnote that says this could be translated, the Lord stood beside him. And I think that translation makes better sense of the context because in verse 15 it says that the Lord says to Jacob, I am with you. Not above you, but with you. So the Lord is there on the earth beside and with 
Jacob at the base of this stairway. It says the angels of God are ascending and descending on it, indicating that this stairway joins heaven to earth. These angels, and that word angel literally means messenger. These messengers symbolize communication between heaven and earth. But interestingly, in the dream, God bypasses the messengers. He doesn't need them, so to speak. And He speaks directly to Jacob. He comes directly to Jacob. He's come down the staircase, if you will, down from the top of the mountain, if you will, and stands next to Jacob. Jacob doesn't climb to the top of this mountain to meet God at the top. It says plainly in verse 15, God says, I am with you. I am with you. This is Jacob's first personal encounter with God, by the way. He knew about his parents' faith, their experiences with God, but now for the first time he's come face to face with the living God. And the experience leaves him scared and overwhelmed. Uh, Overwhelmed, verse 13, or excuse me, 16 and 17 says he wakes up afraid and in awe that the Lord has visited him. There's a sense in which when we personally and truly experience the divine God and who he really is, there's a fear of the Lord that comes into our hearts. Jacob is having that. Then it says in 18 and 19 that he sets up this this rock that he slept on as a pillar. He anoints it with oil. He renames the the place Bethel, which literally means the house of God. And then 20 through 21, it says he makes a vow. I'm going to spend some time on this vow. because This is really important, I think, for understanding what's happening here. Vows in the Bible were often made by those who were in distress, Hannah makes a vow, a vow. Jonah makes a vow in the belly of the fish. Vows were solemn prayers in which the worshiper promises to give God something when their prayer is answered. Now some question Jacob's faith in making this vow to God that's contingent on his safe return to his homeland when God has just promised him his safe return to his homeland. It's thought that Jacob, being ever the bargainer, is still being Jacob here. But a real experience with God, if Jacob does indeed meet the living God in this dream, which I think he does, the Bible says he does, if if this is a real experience, and a real experience of God always results in worship. And Jacob seems to be worshiping here. He's given the stone pillar and the oil to God, and he's promised to give him a tenth of all his future income. He's praying for a safe return. This kind of prayer shows his faith, not his unbelief. In other words, people who don't believe in God don't make vows to God and don't pray to God. God's presence has begun to change Jacob's life. God isn't done yet, as we'll see in a couple chapters. There's still going to be an all-night wrestling match required for full submission. But this vow, I think, indicates how Jacob is starting to sense his need and his dependence on God. His vow is based on his confidence in God's promise, not his desire to put God to the test. Now, perhaps the greatest indicator of Jacob's faith here in this vow is that he voluntarily commits to tithing. Verse 22, end of verse 22, And of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. And you're you're thinking, oh great, here it comes. Pastor's going to talk about tithing. 
Absolutely I am, because the Bible does. People who make these kinds of commitments are serious about their relationship with God. Jacob understands that any money he comes into is from God. He says, of all that you give me, I'll give a tenth. He understands that if he has any money, it's from God. So if you have any money, who's it from? God. It's actually not yours. Jacob understands, also understands, that proportional giving is what people who've been blessed by God do. He may have heard or learned this from his father Isaac talking about his grandfather Abraham who gave a tenth of his wealth to Melchizedek back in chapter 14 after God helped him rescue his nephew Lot. Abraham voluntarily gives a portion, a tenth of his income in light of being blessed by God. Now God did not command tithing until later in the law of Moses. So it's really interesting that in this chapter and then later, or excuse me, earlier in chapter 14, we see God's people voluntarily committing themselves to proportional giving before the law was given. In other words, uh, Jacob here and Abraham earlier, they didn't have to be told to give. They wanted to give to God. They just did it because they wanted to. It's true that the command to tithe is not found explicitly in the New Testament. But it's also true that the New Testament nowhere commands us not to tithe. Randy Alcorn in his little book, The Treasure Principle, which I would encourage you to read that this afternoon. You could read it this afternoon if you wanted to. He says, Alcorn says, that the New Testament seems to assume the tithe, that the tithe can function like training wheels for Christians. In other words, he says, tithing is a good place to start which is so counterintuitive to the way we, we usually think. We're like, man, if I can only work myself maybe up to that. Well, Alcorn's like, no, the New Testament seems to just assume the tithe. It just seems to be what the Old Testament says explicitly, and all these Christians who come from an Old Testament background, for the, uh, for the early church at least, those Jewish Christians, they just understood that they were supposed to give a proportion, a tenth of their income to God. I sometimes wonder what would happen in Christian churches, if every Christian committed to giving 10% of their income to the Lord instead of the average 2 or 3%. Can you imagine, brothers and sisters, the missionaries we could support, the pastors we could support, the churches we could plant, the people groups we could send church planters to, the homeless we could house, the hungry we could feed, the orphans we could adopt. Can you imagine all that we could do let me be clear again. The New Testament doesn't command the tithe. So in our church, we don't teach that you must tithe. And I certainly, as one of your pastors, don't observe or look into who's giving what. I don't do that. And I won't do that. But I do encourage you, because the Bible encourages you in the New Testament to give joyfully, sacrificially, generously, regularly, in keeping with your income. Those are all phrases directly taken from the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. This may mean less than 10% sometimes. It may mean much more than 10% at other times. Galatians 6.6 6 says, Let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. So I take that to mean that we're not limited by the tithe. We might get to 10% and think, all right, great. 
we're successful in this area. But what if we can actually live on less than 90% of our income? That's possible, friends. It's actually possible. So you could give more. Share all good things, Paul says, with the church. So I take Galatians 6.6 6 to mean that we should give to our local church first because the local church is our primary source of teaching. And because it's the primary source of our teaching, it should be the primary recipient of our giving. That doesn't mean we only give to the local church. There are thousands of things we could give to, lots of them really, really, really good and important things. But if we're bypassing the local church, then we're bypassing God's central place for pushing forward His plan in the world. If you'd like to think more about this topic, I'd encourage you to grab this one-page article. I'll put a stack of them out in the foyer. How Much Should We Give? by Jamie Dunlop. He talked in a little bit more detail about some of these things I'm describing to you. If you'd like to consider this topic more, please pick that up. Like Jacob, when we've encountered the presence of God, worship results, and a significant part of that worship is what we do with our money. Those who've been redeemed by Christ have even more reason than Jacob to give voluntarily to the Lord. Brothers and sisters, what we do with our money says more about our relationship with God than perhaps anything else. We can't serve two masters. We must serve God and not money. What was it that moves Jacob to make this kind of vow? What was it that has moved Jacob from this scheming? Man, he's scheming how to take to all of a sudden scheming how to give. What has changed in his heart to, make him, to move him from selfish to sacrificial? Again, the key is verse 15. He has encountered the presence of God and received the promises of God. I am with you and will keep you wherever you go. He's learned that Almighty God is with even a sinner like him. He's learned that God is not just at that place, but that God would be wherever he is, that God just isn't in Bethel, but that God will be wherever he goes. This revelation of God's presence is so powerful for him because it's so timely. Jacob is a fugitive on the run. He's sent away by his parents. He's on a journey by himself into the unknown. But as he sets out on this journey, God meets him and tells him, from now on, everywhere you sleep will be a Bethel. Everywhere you go, guess what? I'm going to be there. I am with you and will keep you wherever you go. And this promise, brothers and sisters, marks the rest of his life. The Lord give it to, gives it to him again in verse, excuse me, chapter 31, where he, he's fleeing from his evil father-in-law, Laban. And he says, uh, the Lord comes to him and says, Return to the land of your fathers and to your kindred, and I will be with you. Then later, Jacob is preparing to return home. And then he tells his family that God will be with him wherever they go. That's 35 Three. Then later in Genesis, he's an old man. He's about to make another journey into a land outside of Canaan. He's about to go into Egypt. This is a daunting journey for an old man. And, you know, he's probably thinking, God, haven't, haven't you promised me the land of Canaan? I'm about to die. Why do I have to leave Canaan again? You know, why do I have to settle somewhere else? He's confused about all of this moving around, and God comes to him again and reminds him again of this promise, 46, 2 through 4. God spoke to Israel, that's Jacob, in visions of the night, and said, Jacob, Jacob, and he said, Here I am. 
Then he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I also will bring you up again, and Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. Then, so he goes to Egypt, comes back to the promised land. He's blessing his sons at the very end of his life. And as he looks back over all his years, he confesses one more time God's presence with him. 48.15, the God before whom he's speaking this to his son Joseph, the God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day. He calls God his shepherd And Jacob knows what it is to be a shepherd. He's watched his his father-in-law's flocks for many years. He knows that a good shepherd has to lead their flock to pasture and to water. But most fundamentally, he knows that a shepherd, by definition, has to be with his flock. He must be with them to provide for them, to protect them. He knows that an absent shepherd is no shepherd at all. He's comparing God to this kind of shepherd. You have been my shepherd wherever I have gone. Of course, this should be reminding you of a specific psalm where the Lord is called my shepherd. Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. Have you ever noticed in that psalm, the very middle verse, verse 4, it's it's the absolute middle of the the Hebrew poem. Verse 4, middle of the verse, it says, the the whole verse is, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. What does it say after that? For thou art with me. So in the middle of that verse about the Lord as a shepherd is this promise that God is with us, that God is with His people. The center and the source of God's guidance and protection and provision is His presence. That little word with, when it links humans to God, is so powerful. Just think of it. We just sang, without you, I fall apart. There's a huge difference, friends. If you're with God, that means God is with you. If you're without God, that means you're without God. (laughs) There's a huge difference, right? There's not a middle area, by the way. There's no middle ground like you either kind of have, have Him on your good days and when you screw up and you blow it again, you don't have him anymore. You know, you have him on Sundays, but when you're at work, you don't really have him. No, you either have God or you don't. This little word with makes all the importance in the world. This is why in ancient Israel, there was the standard greeting, the Lord be with you. The Lord be with you. This is what you wished for someone else. This is what you wished for yourself. This was the way life should be. Many Christians even today around the world say something like, may God be with you or go with God when parting ways. I I was in Brazil as a sophomore in college, my first ever mission trip, and they taught us this Portuguese phrase, vaya con Dios, go with God, go with God. My mother-in-law, almost every single time I leave her house, she says, may God be with you. May God be with you. And that's not a throwaway phrase, is it, Iwana? You really want God to be with me. You want me to know that God is with me. That little word with makes all the difference in our lives. 
If God is with you, that means you have access to his infinite wisdom and care and strength and power and comfort and grace and mercy. You have instant access to his protection and provision, his peace, his guidance, that you have his help all the time everywhere you go. God's presence is what we need to survive. Without God with us, we have no hope in this world. Now this brings us to number three. How can we live in the presence of God? We've seen Jacob leave his family, and Jacob meets God, and God meets with Jacob. Well, what about us? How can we live in the presence of God? First, we must understand that God's special presence is only with His special people, not all people in the same way. God's people, God's special people, His covenant people are those who understand their need for God. That's your only prerequisite. You have to understand your need for God. You have to understand that your sin has separated you from the God who made you. That you've been removed from God's presence like Adam and Eve were removed from the garden. That the curse of death now hangs over your head. You have to understand that God sent Jesus, His Son, into the world to bring sinners back into His presence. That when Jesus died on the cross, Jesus took away the thing that separates us from God, our sin. But now, Paul says, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Through faith in Christ, we can come back into God's presence. So, friends, if you're not yet a follower of Christ, I would encourage you, implore you to ask someone sitting around you or grab me in the foyer to ask questions about what it means to be reconciled to the God who made you, to have the presence of God in your life, to be a special child of God. Through faith in Christ and only through faith in Christ can we be brought back into God's presence. Now Jesus alludes to this. Remember the passage Adashe read? Uh, it's okay if you don't. I'll remind you. John chapter 1. Jesus alludes to this at the very beginning of his, uh, excuse me, of John's gospel. The beginning of his ministry. He's calling his disciples. He's called Philip to follow him. Philip is trying to persuade his friend Nathaniel to follow him. But, but old Nate is skeptical. He's got questions. Until he meets Jesus. Until he meets Jesus. And then he believes. And after Nathaniel believes, Jesus responds this way in John 1.50. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree. Do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Now, remember, in Jacob's dream, the angels ascend and descend on the staircase. But Jesus says these new disciples will see the angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Jesus is drawing a direct connection between the staircase or the stairway and himself and between these new disciples and Jacob. These disciples are a second Jacob, or a second Israel, if you will. They see angels ascending and descending on the staircase that is no longer uh, stone or wood or you know, a ladder from Home Depot. They see angels descending and ascending on the Son of Man, on Jesus Himself. Jesus' point couldn't be clearer. He's saying that He is what bridges the gap between heaven and earth. 
This is what he later means when in John 14, 6, he claims to be the way to the Father in heaven. Jesus didn't come to open up the way to God. Jesus is himself the way. Everyone who wants to be brought back into the presence of God has to travel up the staircase of Jesus. So friends, if you haven't yet placed your faith in Christ, please talk to someone after this service. Talk to the friends you came with or someone sitting around you. Grab me in the for you. We'd love to talk to you about how Jesus is that staircase that brings us back into the presence of the God who made us. Now, of course, many of us in this room have been brought back into the presence of God through faith in Christ. We've climbed the staircase through faith. And we still wonder whether God has forsaken us. We still struggle with feeling that He's rejected us. We sometimes think that He's cast us aside or left us. So what can we do, brothers and sisters, as followers of Christ? What can we do when God feels distant? Let me give you five things. Five things. Number one, be honest about where you are. Be honest about where you are. If you're broken and angry, talk to God about that. If you're living in sin, tell God about it. When we're pretending we're okay, when we're not, God is going to continue to feel distant. Psalm 34 says, The Lord is near, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted. There's a special intimacy for those who are really honest with God about where they are. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted. Confess, excuse me, be honest about where you are. Number two, confess your need for God regularly. Confess your need for God regularly. We should stop living like practical atheists. Admit our vulnerability. One of the best prays we can pray every day is, God, I need you. We just sang this, didn't we? As your feet hit the floor every morning, maybe you just begin your day by saying, Lord, I need you. I need you. Paul tells us to be filled with the Spirit. So we should pray often for the Lord's to the Lord's presence to fill our lives. Confess your need for God regularly. I want to emphasize that, by the way, because I think a lot of times in our prayer life, we go to God with our material needs and maybe our spiritual needs, but we neglect the thing we need the most. Him. <laughs> Him. Like, like, Yes, we can pray all these things, but why would we neglect the, the fountain? Why would we just want His gifts, not the giver? Confess your need for God regularly. Be filled with the Spirit. Pray, God, I need you daily. So be honest about where you are. Confess your need for God regularly. Number three, commit yourself to the body of Christ. Commit yourself to the body of Christ. Join a local church if you haven't already. Attend worship weekly. The church is the temple where the Lord lives on the earth. Now, not the building, okay? Not this room. God doesn't live in this room, okay? He doesn't live in this room in any special way that he, he, He's not somewhere else. God lives, though, in a very, 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 very special way with His people. 
So if we neglect his people, which the New Testament calls his temple, literally that's where he lives, if we neglect his temple, then we're obviously going to feel far from him. Because we're not around his temple, his, where his presence is. We're not around his people. Neglecting the church or keeping it at arm's length will, will keep us detached from the Lord's personal presence. A presence that he many times, maybe most of the time, makes known through the love and care of his people. How many times have you, brother or sister, been loved on or just hugged or just engaged or just encouraged in some small way and immediately been reminded of God's goodness? Don't neglect the gathering. Don't neglect the church. It's a good, good gift. And it's where God lives. Commit yourself to the body of Christ. Number four, this one may sound weird, but here we go. Honor sleep. Honor sleep. What are you talking about, John? Just in a moment or two, I'll try to explain what I mean. Sleep is like a spiritual discipline, like a spiritual discipline, because if we, if we purposefully neglect it for extended periods of time, we're not only going to be more prone to grumpiness, amen, or sicknesses of various kinds, but our hearts will also start to grow more open to sin and doubts and fears and self-condemnation. There, there are, brothers and sisters, there are legitimate non-moral reasons why many of us struggle to sleep. But there are good reasons to pursue consistent, regular rest. Getting good sleep can increase our awareness of God's presence in our lives. In other words, if, if we're always exhausted, it's going to be harder to walk close and feel close to the Lord. Honor sleep. Honor sleep. Number five, finally, honor the Sabbath. Honor the Sabbath. And this is somewhat related to number four. Honor the Sabbath. Ceasing to work one day out of seven is commanded in the Ten Commandments. Moses said that the Sabbath is for worship and refreshment. Jesus says it's a gift. He says, is man made for the Sabbath or the Sabbath made for man? The Sabbath is made for man, is his point. It's a gift. It's for us. What if, brothers and sisters, what if one of the reasons it's so hard for us to sense God's presence in our lives is because we never stop working long enough to, to sense it? What if we're always so busy and attached to our phone or our laptop or whatever that we never stop long enough to actually enjoy and feel and sense the presence of God? The Sabbath is not a luxury. It's like, well, it must be nice, you know, to have time for that. I don't, I don't believe that God gave the Ten Commandments to those who could squeeze it into their schedule. It's not a luxury. It's a fundamental aspect of how God made the world. The seventh day, God rested. An aspect of how He made us to remind us that we are not God, that we need God. So if you're endlessly exhausted, constantly battling feelings of despair, wondering where God is in your life, let me encourage you to honor the Sabbath. Honor the Sabbath. 
Just cease working for a day. All work, paid or unpaid, just cease working. See what happens. It'll look different for each of us, but it at least means that we make intentional time for being spiritually renewed by God's Word and for being physically renewed by God's world. The Bible's idea of rest is not watching TV, playing endless video games, and scrolling social media. It's getting with God and doing things that refresh our souls. And I'm convinced from the Bible and my own experience that doing this regularly will, will increase and sustain our sense of God's nearness in our lives. Honor the Sabbath. Honor sleep. Commit yourself to the body of Christ. Confess your need for God regularly. Be honest about where you are. We will all eventually feel that God has forsaken us in those moments. It's not what we feel, but what we know that matters. What we know, based on Genesis 28, based on the gospel, what we know is that God is with us and will keep us wherever we go, that He won't leave us until He's done what He's promised us. We may feel forsaken by God, but we know that God's people will never be forsaken by God. Because of Jesus, everywhere we sleep is a Bethel. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, God is with us and in us. God couldn't be closer. Brothers and sisters, you're never alone. You're never alone. God is with you. He will keep you wherever you go. And He won't leave you until He's done what He's promised you. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, it's, it's easy to preach these things. It's far more difficult to live them. So please help us. Give us strength. Send your Holy Spirit to help us to, to seek the presence of the Lord continually. To consider it better to be in your presence for one day than to be anywhere else for a thousand years. Lord, help us to feel, to sense, to know, to trust that your presence is with us wherever we go. When we feel forsaken, abandoned, and rejected, bring us back to the things we know to be true, that you are with us, you will keep us, you will never leave us, you will never abandon us, you will never reject us. You are going to stay until the very end. God, help us to walk by your Spirit I pray that your people in this room would be diligent in walking by the Spirit and putting to death the deeds of the flesh. I pray that those in the room this morning that haven't yet committed their lives to you, that, that they understand Christ is perhaps the family God, but not their God. I pray that you would bring them to a place of repentance and faith, of joyful embrace, in who Jesus is. 
Father, help us, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.